One of the great mysteries in all of Christianity has to do with the role of divine sovereignty and human responsibility in salvation. The question then persists, am I a Christian because I chose to believe on Christ and be saved, or does God choose me? Does he choose who becomes a Christian? Over and over again, we see in Scripture verses that command people to repent of their sins and believe and trust in Jesus Christ. We're reminded of Romans 10.9 that says, If you confess with your heart that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. We read about the would-be follower of Christ in Acts 16.30 who asked the disciples, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And their answer is, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It is also the thrust of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that whoever he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Even Paul's testimony of the church in 1 Thessalonians 1.9, he says, For they themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you. And then he says this, And how you turned to God from idols to live, uh, to serve a living and true God. And so you must turn to God in repentance. And you must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. And yet... The Bible maintains that no one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws him, John 6, 44. Furthermore, Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5 declares that he, God, chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. That's more than election unto good works, as some would maintain. It is election unto adoption. Adoption, a saving, regenerate, justified relationship with God as our Father. And once in this relationship of loving adoption, He blesses us as adopted children. And we interact with God as a loving Father. And it's this beautiful reality that Jesus expresses and explores in our text today. And so turn in your copy of Scripture, if you would, with me to the end of Matthew chapter 11. This will be our last week in Matthew 11. We're going to continue on to Matthew 12 next week. But we're coming to the end of Matthew 11, a very long and elaborate discourse. And really, we, when we get to the end of chapter 11, we, we arrive there by a way or a way that you probably wouldn't expect. What do I mean by that? It means that Jesus' words of comfort in verses 28 to 30 are preceded by words of severe confrontation. Way back in verse 12 of the same chapter, he tells the gathered crowd that nobody strolls into heaven casually. He talks about uh, taking heaven by force, and we talked about holy violence, violent men taking the kingdom of heaven by force. Really an earnestness and a a holy uh, pursuit of godliness and righteousness, that it's not some kind of a lackadaisical thing in the Christian life. In other words, we are, we are engaged as people who desire the Lord and desire His salvation. However, there are many in His day, and certainly in our day too, who simply will not respond to the gospel call. For those who do not respond, Jesus says in verse 23, they will descend to Hades. To hell, Jesus says. However, and on the other hand, there are some who will respond. Some will respond to the gospel message 
and they will find life and salvation. And that is what Jesus is speaking about in these last five verses, Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 to 30. Look at this with me. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls." For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. These verses, again, stark contrast to Jesus blasting unrepentant cities and then turning and praying these words to the Heavenly Father. Look again at verses 25-26. This is his prayer to the Father. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. You have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. Now, at first glance, you look at these verses after where we've been, and at first it seems a little bit random. You're thinking, boy, this doesn't really fit into his condemnation and denunciation of all these other cities. Where are we, where are we getting this from? Well, remember, every text has a context. Every text has a context. Matthew uh, records these words at that time. At that time. And the Bible student would say, okay, well, at what time? Matthew doesn't elaborate, but Luke does seem to. Luke does elaborate here, and I'm just going to make reference to this. In Luke chapter 10, it's a parallel passage. Uh, We record these words in conjunction with Jesus sending out 70 disciples and having them return back to him. And so just in your mind, the frame of reference, in Luke 10, 1, he commissions and sends 70 of his disciples to go out into the cities and preach the gospel. Then Luke records that Jesus at that time, once they're gone, begins to denounce Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. And we read about that in Matthew. So that's the same time frame. After he does this in Luke 10, 17, all these disciples return back to him and they report all the amazing things that have taken place on their journey. And while, yes, many of the Galilean cities have rejected Jesus' message, there are many other people in other cities who have believed it. And it's in response to the news of many people in many cities believing the gospel message. At that time, Luke records that Jesus rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and offered up his prayer to the Father, his prayer in verse 25. I praise you, Father Lord of heaven and earth. So that is the context of what's going on here. Now, not only does Jesus model for us what it looks like to pray to the Heavenly Father, but he also exalts the Heavenly Father and and, and attributes to him full sovereignty. Full sovereignty. He calls him Lord of heaven and earth. That's not a common uh, reference or a common title throughout the scriptures. It's certainly true of God, but we don't see it repeated often. But Jesus says it here, Lord of heaven and earth. That's going to set up what he's about to pray for next. Remember, again, the backdrop of the whole thing is the sovereignty of God. Lord of heaven and earth. For what does Jesus praise the Father? He says this, He praises the Father, Lord of heaven and earth, 
For what purpose? That you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Now again, on the surface, again, it sounds like an odd sentiment. Why are you praising the Father for hiding things from wise and intelligent people and revealing them to, to babies, to infants? That God hides the truth from these It seems kind of strange, again, if we don't understand what he's talking about. Does this mean that smart people, that wise people, intelligent people can't understand the things of God? Well, certainly not. That's not what he's talking about at all. See, when Jesus refers to these things, he's talking about the truth pertaining to himself and to the kingdom and to salvation. These things that the Galilean cities had rejected. But the reason they rejected them is because God did not open their eyes and their hearts to receive it. Why? Because they were stubborn and they were prideful. They were hard-hearted. See, the contrast is not between intelligence and those who are infantile. Rather, in the context here, the themes behind all of this and the thrust behind all of this is that the contrast is between those who are, are proud and those who are humble. Oftentimes, Intelligence and, and smarts and nobility is, is likened to those who are haughty and prideful. But yet those who are meek and lowly are the ones who are humble. And we see that. Actually, turn in for, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 for a second here. I want to tease this out a little bit here. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul in 1 Corinthians is answering questions and challenging assumptions in the church. One assumption is made that he addresses very early in his letter, and it's this. This is the general assumption that he answers. And you can read between the lines and see this general assumption. Here's the assumption that Paul is going to address. That the greatest Christians, the greatest Christians are the most notable and the most wise. That makes the most sense, right? That the best Christians in the world would be the smartest and most intelligent and most famous and most noble, and that's the best of the best, right? That's the, the, uh, the assumption that the smarter you are and the more popular you are, the better Christian you're going to be. But that's what Paul deals with in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look at verse 18. He says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. We preach Christ crucified. And to the Jews, a stumbling block and to the Gentiles, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Listen to that language. It's amazing. Verse 26, For consider your calling, brethren. There were not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. For God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen. And the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are. 
Why? What's the reason for this? Verse 29, so that no man may boast before God. No man may boast before God. In summary, what is he talking about? In summary, the world's way is not always God's way. And I would even add a little footnote. The world's way is seldom God's way and almost never God's way and vice versa. It is not inherently those who are smart and intelligent and noble and wise and have everything going for them. Those don't, aren't always the greatest Christians. Now, yes, God does redeem people who are brilliant and who are noble and who are influential and all that stuff. But that is not the key ingredient to faithfulness. The great evangelical temptation is that of intellectual respectability. We're addicted, it seems. You read culture, Christian culture. We are addicted to credibility in the world. That's why academic institutions are falling like flies right now and have been for the last 400 years in this country. Because always we are chasing respectability and we're not chasing biblical faithfulness. And as soon as we begin to reject biblical faithfulness for the sake of, biblical, or, or, for the sake of popularity and respectability, our witness crumbles beneath us. Harvard was founded to train ministers to go out into the frontier and preach the gospel, and now you cannot be a Christian on the Harvard campus without persecution. Paul says, our way is not that of worldly wisdom, but of gospel foolishness. Gospel foolishness, he calls it, because that's how the world sees it. And so therefore, verse 26, not many of us are going to appeal to the, uh, appear to the world to be wise and mighty or noble. In fact, we're going to look like nepios in the Greek, Infants, like little children to the world. In fact, he even continues on. Just listen to these words here. Same chapter, or same First uh, Corinthians chapter two. He says, "We speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom, in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood." For if they had understood, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They do not understand because it has not been revealed to them. It is hidden. The things of God are mysteries to those who do not understand. It's hidden wisdom. It is a wisdom that God must reveal. But in His sovereignty, in God's sovereignty, He chooses to reveal that to people and He chooses to whom He will reveal it. And he also chooses who he will hide this information from as well. And while all the world does see the attributes of God that are revealed through the creation, he only reveals a saving knowledge to his humble children. This is God's prerogative to do it. However, it is also God's joy to do it, which is why Jesus says in verse 26, back in Matthew 11, he says, Yes, Father. He's affirming. Yes, Father, not only have you hidden these things from the wise and from the intelligent and you have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, he's affirming. He says, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. God, you did this because it made you joyful. It was pleasing to you. It was according to your pleasure. We read about this salvation election in Ephesians chapter 1 being according to the kind intention of God's will. This is well-pleasing to God. Again, this sovereign revelation is pleasing to the Father. He glorifies Himself to do it. 
At least, again, that's what the thrust of Ephesians 1 says, John 1, Romans 9, and so on and so forth. But this is a great comfort to us. Why is this a great comfort to us? Because it teaches us that if we understand the gospel and the things of God, it's not because we ourselves are so inherently wise and intelligent, but because God, in His mercy, has chosen to reveal these things to us, and it was well-pleasing in His sight. If you know Christ, it's because God has poured out His love and opened your eyes and drawn you to Himself, and you should be thankful for that. It's a great blessing. But there's more going on here. Yes, we are accepted by God because of the revelation of the Father, but also, Jesus says, because of the, the agency of the Son. Look at verse 27. He now moves from praying to the Father and talking about the Father's intention of salvation. But then he says in verse 27, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. There's a lot going on in this verse. There's really four major statements that are being made. The first pertains to the authority of the Son. He says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. Now remember, the Father is Lord of heaven and earth. And He has handed all things over to the Son, to Jesus. Now statements like this are made all the time throughout the course of the Gospels. And they pertain to this act of the Father giving the full authority to His own Son. Just a couple of examples. John 3.35, Jesus says, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Or even Matthew 28.18, very famous verse where Jesus declares, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Even here we see this Lord of heaven and earth giving full authority of heaven and earth to the Son of God. Then he declares this, no one knows the Son except the Father. That's a statement of of exclusive intimacy. Exclusive. Where Christ comes into the world and nobody else really knows who He is. And you have to remember, see, we have the, the benefit of having the written revelation. We now we have a, a fully formed, a more sure record. But when Jesus first arrives on the scene and their people are meeting him and interacting with him, they don't know who he is. Because he doesn't look, he doesn't look like anybody special. He comes from a very uh, a poor uh, neighborhood. Nazareth is, there's nothing to it. And he comes and he says these amazing things and they just don't know what to make of him. So they don't know who He is, but He declares, listen, the Father knows me. The Father knows me. There's intimacy there. God knows me. That's John 5.37. The Father who has sent me, He has borne witness of me. But then He adds, but you have neither heard His voice at any time or have seen His form. He's telling Jews that you think you know God? If you knew God, you'd know me. But you don't know me. But you know who does know me? The Father you claim to worship. He knows me. He knows exactly who I am and why I'm here. So there's a statement of intimacy. Jesus is claiming claiming nobility and kinship with the Father. Now into a first century Jew in Palestine, this is a blasphemous statement if it's not true. But he takes it even further. He says this, and not, not only does the Father know me, but nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. You can't know God unless you know me. I know the Father. This is, again, a startling statement. 
Jesus has been claiming the inside track with God. He knows God. And in this way, Jesus is claiming exclusivity with the Father. And the crowds would have bristled against this. John 8, 19. So they were saying to him, these are the crowds, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Even his disciples, John 14, 8, Philip, our beloved Philip, he says, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. Show us the Father and we'll be happy. And Jesus responds and says, have I been so long with you and yet you do not know me, Philip? Do you not understand this yet, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. That's an amazing statement. John 1.18 says that Jesus' job, his whole job in coming in terms of the revelation, is to explain, to exegete, to exposit the Father. He came that we might know God better through him. There is an intimacy and an exclusivity. Jesus shows us God. How does he do it? Hebrews 1.3. Because he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact representation of his nature. Because when we see Jesus, we see the image of the Father. To know the Son is to know the Father. Yes, they are separate in terms of personhood, but they are one in divinity. We believe and serve one God who exists eternally in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each of them are fully and truly and verily God, yet distinct in personhood. And so no one can come to the Father and know Him unless they go through the one who truly knows Him, and that's the Son. Then there's a fourth statement. Not only must you come to me, the one who knows the Father, only the one who knows the Father can reveal Him. And he says, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom, listen to this, the Son wills to reveal Him. So Jesus is claiming authority to then reveal the knowledge of the Father and the experience of the Father and and knowability of the Father. He claims authority to be able to give that to people. And so you want to know God, you have to know me. And I will show you who God is. This is This is a powerful truth. This is a remarkable truth. John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's a very narrow, narrow gate. And that narrow gate is Jesus Christ. And so the Son of God must reveal this to people. He must. Do we see this in Scripture? This idea of the Son revealing or or hiding certain information? Yes, we do. In fact, even in the parables. Just listen to this. In Mark chapter 4, verses 10 through 12, he's teaching all these parables and parables and parables. And the disciples, they come alongside and they're scratching their heads And he says, as soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, they began to ask him about the parables. And he was saying to them, to you it has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside get everything in parables. Why? Why do they only get stories in parables? So that while seeing, they may see and yet not perceive, and while hearing, they may hear and not understand, otherwise they would return and be forgiven. Jesus is deliberately withholding revelation from certain people who will not be saved and revealing this information 
to others. It is his divine prerogative. It's a prerogative that he receives from his Father. Jesus chooses who he will reveal this truth to. He reveals the truth to those who the Father has elected and called. This is why Jesus is so excited when Peter makes his profession of faith in in Matthew 16, 16. Peter declares to Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. How does Jesus respond? Good job, Peter. You're a smart guy. You must have studied really hard to get this truth. Amen. He doesn't say any of that, does he? He says, no. Verse 17, blessed are you. Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Not even your own flesh and blood. Who has revealed this to you? My Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. Blessed are you. Happy are you. Overjoyed are you that God's revealing this to you. Rejoice and be glad. And so we come to God and we are accepted because God reveals it to us, this information, these things, and because the Son grants it to us. But there's another component here. There's another component. Because the Lord also invites us to. He invites us. Verses 28 to 30. 28 to 30. They make up some of the most beautiful and cherished words in the whole New Testament. I say that about every single passage, don't I? But I really mean it this time. The, the, these words are medicine for a weary soul. I, brothers and sisters, I need these words. You're just here with me today. I need these words. And I suspect you do as well. Jesus is he's giving this medicine, this balm for the weary soul. And Jesus himself is calling sinners to himself. And this is what he says to those who are coming to him. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. Now the first thing we have to note about this is that this is a genuine invitation. This is a genuine invitation. This is real. And the question is, well, for whom is this invitation? Earlier, Jesus has said that the Father must reveal the truth of the gospel to those who will receive it. Elsewhere in John 6.37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Do you see this? He says, the Father is giving those to me, and all who come to me I will not cast out. And that's why he says, come to me then. Come to me, I will not cast you out. Yet a few verses later in verse 44, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless... The Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So there is this mystery of divine sovereignty over all things, including salvation, and yet this earnest plea from the shepherd of the sheep, from the Savior, from the Lord of all creation, saying, come to me, and I won't cast you out. It's a genuine invitation. The Father is drawing people to Himself. He opens their eyes. He softens their heart. He gives them to Jesus. And to those who are prepared to receive Him, He welcomes them with open arms. This is why we can, with full confidence, 
Tell a person. This is why my invitations go this way. That if there's anything in you, anything at all, that desires Christ, if there's anything in you that wants forgiveness for sins, if there's anything in you that hungers and thirsts for righteousness or longs for eternal life, if there's even the slightest little impulse, a seed, a mustard seed of faith in you that desires to come to Christ, we throw the doors open and say, come to Jesus now. We respond the way he responds. He says, come to me, all you who are coming to me. I will not cast you out. It's a genuine invitation. Come to Jesus and he will accept you. Period, end of sentence. No conditions. Puritan Matthew Henry notes that there are three ways that we do come to Christ, by the way. Three things we can see in these verses. And the first is that we come to Christ as our rest. We get so busy, don't we? We get so burdened and so heavy laden. We're just torn left and right by whatever's going on in the world, what's going on in our lives, what's going on in ministry, what's going on with our families, our friends. It doesn't matter what it is. We get so heavy laden, don't we? Burdened, weary, tired. But we come to Jesus as our rest. Look at verse 28. He says, Come to me, all who are weary, and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Again, this invitation is genuine. All who are weary and heavy laden, this word rendered weary in the Greek, refers to a person who has been laboring to the point of exhaustion. If you're coming to Christ on your face, sliding in on your face, barely getting to Him because you're exhausted from life, if that's how you're coming to Him, He says, come and I'll give you rest. This word for heavy laden means burdened burdened with whatever that may be. Now, there are certainly applications here for people who are coming to Christ with all kinds of burdens and anxieties and worries and fears. Yes, if you are prone to worry and anxiety and fear and labor, as I am, yes, you come to Christ and He will minister to you. But the primary meaning here in the context of what he's preaching about to all these people, the true meaning of these words pertains to those who are coming to him and are burdened by sin. Sins and transgression and guilt and shame. People in this world, even today, especially today, are so burdened and heavy laden. And they are seeking every kind of reprieve they can find. Drugs and alcohol and addictions and pornography and affairs and distractions and hobbies and workaholism and laziness and whatever they can do, TV, music, whatever it is that can distract me away from the burdens that I fear and the the struggles that I have and the sin that is so easily entangling me and tripping me up. Compounding this problem is the soul-crushing burden, in addition to that, of false religion. False religion, because people come and they come into certain religions, false religion, and they come with all these burdens and they say, I want them lifted. And false religion only puts down more law on them. That's why legalism is so insidious. And it creeps in even to the church. Laws and mandates and rules and gates you have to walk through and things you have to do and practices you must observe. The old law, we are not under the law anymore. We're under grace. If you want more teaching, I went through all of Galatians and expounded on the Christian's relationship to the law. We are not bound by external law anymore. And false religion 
That's all they have is external law to bind consciences and labor onto people and burden them with things that they're not meant to carry. This is one of Jesus' core issues with the Pharisees and the religious leaders of Israel. Matthew 23 is the most scathing chapter in the Gospels. It's directed to the Pharisees. And he's crying out. He says, the scribes and the Pharisees, he says, they tie up heavy loads and they lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. They'll tell you what you have to do. And as soon as you say, yes, but Rabbi, Pharisee, please help me. Uh, That's on you. Jesus says they won't even lift a finger to help you. But they'll lay all these burdens on you to do. That's the, that's the nature of false religion. Saddling worshipers with man-made laws and unbiblical burdens, and they're promising forgiveness for external obedience, but it only crushes people. False religion crushes people to death. And if you think I'm spe- speaking metaphorically, look, go to Africa, parts of Africa right now, where there are false teachers in the prosperity gospel movement And I've seen story after story after story who these these African ministers, they will saddle their own churches. I saw an article about one pastor who, who said, we must have the faith of Daniel and set his church building on fire and everybody inside died. Another pastor who said, you must trust in the strength of God and began to actually put a a loudspeaker onto one of his congregants and she was crushed to death by this speaker. And it was her fault because she didn't have enough faith. False religion kills people. But more concerned about the body is the concern for the soul. That's what Jesus is talking about. Those who are so burdened with external, man-made, false things and not the things of the heart. Jesus says if you're burdened by sin and guilt and shame and law and legalism, come to me and I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest. We see this theme all throughout the Scriptures. The rest that's spelled out in Psalm 95. The writer of Hebrews expounds on it as well. Again, the context of rest is offered in salvation, whereby Hebrews 4 explains that those who reject the Gospel and engage in active disobedience of the Lord will not enter His rest. And then he turns the tables and he speaks to those who are believers. He says in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, so there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. We get a Sabbath rest for us, for the one who has himself also rested from his works, so God did from his. In the same way that God has rested from his creative labors, he commands us and calls us to rest from our labors as well. And so my friends, my dear friends, if you are tired of running from God, if you're exhausted from sin's burdens, if you're weighed down with the tyranny of self-righteousness and man-made law, come to Christ and He'll give you rest because He Himself is our rest. Secondly, we come to Christ as our ruler. Yes, He is our rest, but He's also our ruler. Look at verse 29. He says, after He tells people to come to Him and He'll give them rest, He says, take my yoke. Now that seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? I've just told you to rest and I'm going to put a yoke on you? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. What is he talking about here? Now, in coming to Christ, we are submitting to him as our ruler, as our Lord. 
And we see this requirement here when he instructs the followers to take on his yoke upon themselves. Now, there is a double meaning here for this yoke. The first and the most direct sense is that of mastery and service. In the agricultural world, a yoke is a, a wooden brace that is put on the, the back of a beast of burden, usually an ox. And that, that brace controls their movements and it submits them and subjects them to the will of the master. But when Jesus places his yoke upon us, he is intending for us to serve him and regard him as our master. And yet we know that Jesus is not a cruel master. He's not a slave driver and a taskmaster who's brutal to us. In fact, he says quite the opposite. With this idea of taking on his yoke and putting this yoke onto us as now workers for him and slaves of righteousness for him, he says, take my yoke and learn of me. But then he says this, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And then he quotes this, even after taking his yoke, you will find rest for your souls. How in the world do we rest when we take on the yoke of Christ? It's because of the nature of what he's giving us, which we'll talk about in a second. But again, Jesus is gentle toward those who belong to him. He has a gentle disposition toward you as his people. In fact, John tells us in 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And he's not talking about external obedience. He says this, his commandments are not burdensome. From our slavery to sin and slavery to man-made law, Christ controls us by his love and commands us toward a loving obedience. A loving obedience. And in this way, we read verse 30, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Serving the Lord Jesus Christ is a joy. Not just because of the work that he gives us to do. Again, we are not under the law and the slavery of law. We're under grace. And yes, there is godly obedience that follows that, but that obedience is not tied to our justification. My labor and my work for Him is not tied to my standing with Him. Paul says we are justified by faith alone apart from works of the law. So we're not, that's not tied to that. My standing before Him is based on His righteousness. His ability and accomplishments of satisfying the Father, not my own. And so therefore, as I live as a child of God now, adopted by the Father for His good pleasure, now the things that I do become joyful. And the burdens of what Christ now has are light. There is joy and there is satisfaction. Not to stress out that I have to go and serve Him, but the joy in knowing that I get to serve Him. It's totally different. It's contrary to the way the world sees all of this. The world looks at this and even other religions that would even claim Christianity. People say, oh, I have to go to church today. We get to say, we get to come in fellowship with one another and serve God together. This is the best day of the week for me. It's totally different. Christ is the perfect master. And so in service to Christ, it's a delight. He says it's easy, not in a simplistic way. There are things that feel difficult in the moment. It's difficult to deny yourself, is it not? It's difficult to take up your cross and follow him. But he doesn't do this and tell us about this this 
yoke of his teaching and his commands, he doesn't do this to crush us. Christ doesn't crush us at all. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoking wick he will not extinguish. So his burdens are easy. His yoke is light. And compared to the burden of sin, my friend, and the burdens of man-made law, the expectations of the world, what they offer, Christ, is, his burden is so light. So light. In fact, it's so light that compared to all else, it feels like rest. And so the end of verse 29, it's quoted from Jeremiah 6.16, where he promises, you will find rest for your souls. Yes, life is difficult. Yes, we are weighed down by sin and transgression. Yes, we cannot seem to get out of our own way. I know I can't. But at the end of the day, our status before God, our relationship to Him, our connection to Him, our future with Him, our hope with Him, is not built on whatever paltry offering I have. It's built on His righteousness and His grace and His love that He would even reveal any of this to us. He's so loving. He's so tender toward us. We will find rest for our souls. And so we come to Christ as our rest. We come to Christ as our ruler. Finally, we come to Christ as our teacher. Our teacher. The other sense of Christ's yoke here, this word yoke is actually a rabbinic expression. Yes, it was a a burden that was placed on a, a beast, But it's also a rabbinic term. It means to take on a teacher's yoke. That means that you are taking on the sum total of all their teaching, all their ministry. If you were to sit down, I mean, we we see published today, you can go and find the works of so-and-so. Some of you have the works of John Owen, the works of John Flavel, the works of whoever, right? And, And you sit down, you can read volume after volume after volume and get the entire totality of their work. I've read the works of R.C. Sproul. You read all of their stuff. You get the whole, the whole nugget of what they believe and teach and stand for, who they are as people. That is their yoke. Jesus says, take on my yoke. All that I have for you, take on my yoke. What I have to say, what I've revealed to you, who I am, my plans that I have for you, the promises for the future, my corrections, my exhortations, my commandments, my comfort. Take all that I have, all of my teaching. Take my yoke and learn from me. Learn from me. This implies, beloved, discipleship. This applies, uh, applies to faithful study. It implies a commitment to learning the Word of God. Notice that in the story of Martha and Mary, he doesn't rebuke Mary for sitting at his feet to learn, but he gently rebukes Martha for working herself into a tizzy. We're supposed to come and sit at His feet and learn from Him. Learn from Him. Take on His full yoke. The works of Jesus Christ, if you will, contained in the Scriptures. And meditate and dive in and know His Word. What does He explicitly say? It's very easy to have a sense of, I think God wants me to do this, but He will never contradict the plain teaching of Scripture. He has a will for you and for me. And He has work. But Jesus wants you and me to learn from Him. And the more of His Word that we know, guess what? The easier it becomes to submit to Him. And the more you submit to Him, guess what happens? You find rest. You begin to rest. You're not worried about all these other things. 
You say, Lord, whatever the next step is in front of me, I'll, I'll submit to that. And I'll do that. And then something else happens and throws you through a loop. And all right, whatever's next, Lord. Now, brothers and sisters, that's hard to do. And I say that as a hypocrite from the pulpit, that I struggle to do it as well. Whatever is next, whatever is in front of me, Lord, give me grace to do what's next. But that is what he tells us to do. The more we know him, we submit to him. The more we submit to him, we rest in him. Are you weighed down, my friends, with sins and with shame? And if you are, come to Jesus. Turn from your sins and trust in him for eternal life. And I would even say to the flock, if you, are you weighed down with anxieties and burdens and fears and worries? Come to Christ and cast your cares upon Him because He cares for you. He cares for you. Come to Jesus and lay your burdens at His feet. Cast your cares onto Him. And why can we do that? Why can we do that? Because Christ Himself has borne all of the burdens of our sins on His own back on the cross. He took on all of the record of debt. He took it out of the way, Colossians says, and nailed it to His cross. And the punishment and penalty for our sins dies with Him. And He goes into the ground and rises the third day, victorious, to grant eternal life to all who would repent of our sins and trust in Jesus Christ. And the Gospel message is so simple And so easy, even an infant, relatively speaking, can understand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that you have chosen to hide the mysterious truths from some, but also delighted to reveal them to others. And God, the Bible shows us that it is not the, the elite and the top and the, the most noble and the most wise who automatically get these things. That you choose to reveal these things to whomever you decide. And when it is revealed, Lord, we accept it by faith and we embrace you as Lord and Savior. And so, Father, that is, that is such good news for us because there are not many of us who are mighty and noble and wise. There are not many of us, I would dare even say none of us, that has this all figured out. All of us are beggars before you. All of us are lowly and meek. All of us need your grace and your mercy and your kindness. And yet, you give it to us out of the goodness and loving kindness of your heart. And you extend this welcome to us who are coming to you. And so, Lord Jesus, we hear loud and clear what you say that we are to come to you if we are burdened and heavy laden. And you promise to give us rest. And so, Lord, I I pray for your people today. If there are any here who are burdened and weighed down and heavy, with sin or guilt or shame or law or they're running themselves ragged or they're anxious about the world or they're anxious about everything else around them or family drama or whatever it may be, whatever is bothering us, Lord, I pray that you would grant us to come to you and that we would by faith.
And Lord, if anyone is here who does not know you, I pray that they would hear this message, that today would be the day of their salvation. They'd stop running from you and say, I've sinned against God. Forgive me, O Lord. And I, I trust in Jesus as my sole Savior to get me to heaven. I confess my sins. I trust in you. Save me. And the Bible says that you will. And so, Lord, we cast our cares before you, understanding and believing that you do care for us. We pray all these things in the name of our capable Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.